1 Corinthians, and we're going to read um, the first bit of chapter 10, 14 to 22. But we'll start from the beginning of chapter 10, just to set some context. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit a sexual adultery, sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean, then, that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have both in part the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? If the Apostle Paul were alive today, what would you ask him? You give that question just a little bit of thought. I imagine you could probably come up with a page of questions. Questions about your faith. Questions about ethics and um, how we should live as Christians. A bucket load of verses in the Bible that you're still trying to get to grips with. Uh, Many of us, if we had the opportunity, would probably like to be able to grill an apostle and ask all of those questions that we would love to have answered. And they're the kinds of questions that aren't going to be abstract. If you had that opportunity, if you could ask the apostle Paul a load of questions, you're not going to hit him with theoretical stuff. You're going to ask him 
real, heartfelt, theological, life-changing questions. And I remind us of all of that because that was equally true of the Corinthians. Only they got to grill an apostle. Which means as we work through this section in Corinthians, some of it sounds distant, far off, not sure how I can relate to it. But these questions were to them as pressing, as urgent, as real, as much about what they did day to day as the questions we would ask would be if we could ask the apostle our questions. And we need to remind ourselves of that when we get to this question about food that's sacrificed to idols. We've been looking at it for a while now. And it's been going on and on because as we've worked through chapters 8 and 9 and 10, Paul's looked at all the different layers that are connected to this question. And as we wrap up this section over this week and Lord willing next week, uh, we are going to see that Paul focuses on two specific layers to this question. On one hand, we've got a very practical question that's all related to what food can I eat? Because the Corinthians needed to do their food shop just like you and I do. And when they went down to the market, they had to work out what meat to buy. Didn't have all the labels saying where it had come from. So there was a genuine question for them. Could they eat meat that had previously been offered to idols or not? And if they went around to a mate's house who wasn't a Christian, and they suddenly realized that something that they were cooking had been offered to idols, could they eat that food or not? They're really practical questions about what they should do as new Christians. Lord willing, we're going to get to that next week in the final section of chapter 10. Tonight, we're asking a question on the spiritual level. And if the uh, Corinthians could have specifically asked this question, it might be something like this. Is it a big deal to join your non-Christian friends in a religious meal? And we hear that question and think, uh, that's a really easy question. But as we've worked through chapters 8, 9, and 10, hopefully you've seen something of the setting and you've seen something of the reason for their struggle because they would have agreed that there's only one God and you can only worship one God. But this, is this worshipping another God? Isn't this just a meal? If the Corinthians in this church, they didn't believe in Apollo or Artemis or Zeus or any of the other Greek gods, and if they knew that all of those things were false, did it really matter if they joined their friends, whether at the fellowship tea at the end of some pagan festival meal or in the dining room of some pagan temple? Did it really matter if they went there and had some food to eat? Especially because, chapter 8, verse 4, false gods, Paul reminds us, aren't real gods. So is it really a big deal? That's, that's part of the spiritual question they're wrestling with. We need to add to that what we thought two weeks ago when we were last in 1 Corinthians. Because a lot of them are struggling with presumption. They were struggling with the same way of thinking that the Israelites had, which is why Nigel very helpfully read the beginning of that passage to remind us of the Old Testament history. People in Corinth seem to think, I've got all these covenant blessings, like baptism, 
like the Lord's Supper, like all these other things. And if I've got them, then I'm fine to do anything else in the world. I'm spiritually protected. You might think that the Corinthians viewed themselves and their blessings, that the blessings were like a vaccination program. So as long as you had your bread from the Lord's Supper, you could go out into the world and do whatever you liked, because you're fine. You've got God. doesn't really matter about anything else. You're protected in that presumptuous way that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Because as far as they were concerned, it wasn't just they were Christians. They are freedom-loving Christians who knew their rights. That's, that's the theme that was weaving its way through the first section of chapter 10. And that's the, his, that's the situation that Paul is writing into. Not to people he didn't really like that he just wanted to hit with a hard line. He begins, doesn't he, in verse 14, writing to dear friends. He loves these people. And he wants them to understand why this really matters. So as he wraps up all of this argument from chapters 8 and 9 and 10, he begins, verse 14, with a very simple and direct command. Flee from idolatry. That's what this is. It's not nothing. It's not spiritually small. This is spiritually ensnaring, Christ-denying, judgment-inducing idolatry. And they had to flee from it. He does that by showing us what's really happening when we eat and drink in worship. And I suppose the big idea really is that participating in religious meals matters. Participating in religious meals matters. And he's going to show us how it matters for Christians, how it mattered for the Jews, and how it mattered for the Corinthians. So firstly... For Christians, the Lord's Supper is a precious, covenant-affirming blessing. I know it's a mouthful. Try to make sure every word matters. The Lord's Supper is a precious, covenant-affirming blessing. Listen again to verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for what we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the blood that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Some of us are so familiar with the Lord's Supper that we're in danger of becoming too familiar with it. We're quick to think of it as just being a memorial and then we stop there. So if you've been in our church family for any period of time, you'll know that we often, if you turn in your Bibles one page over, read from 1 Corinthians 11, which is Paul's instruction to this church about how they're to practice the Lord's Supper. And he quotes from Jesus's teaching. And he says, when Jesus took the bread, he said, this is my body. If you are looking uh, in chapter 11, look in verse 23, 24, 25. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember, remember, like the 5th of November. And it is very tempting for us as Christians to think of the Lord's Supper as an aid memoir. It's like the Christian equivalent of stopping for two minutes at 11 on the 11th of November every year and remembering the sacrifice that others paid for our freedom. We can get into the habit of thinking that the Lord's Supper is just 
an act of remembrance. Well, Paul teaches us one chapter earlier that the Lord's Supper is much more precious and much more important than just an act of remembrance. In the wine and the bread, we participate in the body and blood of Jesus. In, in the Greek, Paul uses his koinonia word. And if you've ever looked at anything to do with the New Testament in Greek, you know that koinonia is it's his word for fellowship. It's his word for sharing with something in common. He often uses it throughout his letters to describe the relationship that we have as brothers and sisters. We're supposed to be sharing and fellowshipping, koinoniaing with one another. And here he says, that's what we do in the supper. Not because we are reenacting the sacrifice of Jesus. The Bible's very clear. Jesus paid that sacrifice once and for all. And not because the body and the wine become the body, uh, sorry, the bread and the wine become the body and the blood of Jesus. That's what the Roman Catholics call transubstantiation. That's not what the Bible teaches either. Physically speaking, the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine. But when we share a religious meal together, it's not only physical. That is the big idea that is right at the heart of this whole passage. When Christians come around the Lord's table together, we are spiritually sharing in the blessings of Christ's sacrifice with him and with one another. So when we break that bread, we are reminding ourselves of the reality of Jesus' humanity, of his willingness to break all of his body in order to pay the penalty for our sin. When we drink that cup, we are reminding ourselves of the cost of the forgiveness of our sin, of the willingness of an eternal God to take upon himself frail humanity and then willingly give his lifeblood such that our sin can be forgiven. That's the key point about communion. We're not just eating, drinking, and remembering. We're participating. We're joining together with the host of the table, which means we're joining together around the table with Jesus himself. We are, we are renewing our covenant blessings. We are receiving afresh all that comes through him and our forgiveness in him. And not only fellowshipping with him, verse 17, we're fellowshipping with each other because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Now, we've been in this book for some time. You can all remember the factions, the divisions, the schisms that are going on in Corinth. This church family can disagree over anything. They get themselves stuck in their little silos. In this context, we're specifically thinking about some who will go and join in a pagan feast. And to that divided, separating church family, Paul says that's not what it means to be a Christian. You don't just get saved, do your own thing, come together to do things with other people, but they're not really part of you. We're one body. One beautifully diverse group of people who are all saved by the same Savior, who when we come to the supper, we are reminded of our unity in Jesus Christ. 
which means you can't have a group of a church heading off and worshipping and celebrating in a feast to another God. You are dividing that one body. Now, at this point in his letter, Paul is describing all of this to set up the contrast to what we're going to see in the pagan feasts. We're going to get there in a minute. But do you see how rich and beautiful is the description of the Lord's Supper? Every time we have the privilege of taking it together, we are not just remembering an event in history. We are being reminded of the blessings that are ours. We're not even just being reminded. We are renewing that covenant that is ours because of the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood, which is the instigation of a new covenant that we were thinking about this morning. We are receiving afresh the encouragement of what it means to be Christians who know that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has covered all of our sin and that his broken body has given to us a new life that will never perish, spoil, or fade because our reward is kept in heaven, guarded by the God of heaven and earth. I hope when you next come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 10 will be in your mind just as much as 1 Corinthians 11. And that you will remember afresh that when you gather around this table, you're not just physically remembering, you are spiritually participating. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes back to Israel's history. It's what we saw a couple of weeks ago. He wants them to see all these examples that they were supposed to learn from Israel's history. And he does the same thing when he talks about the importance of religious meals there. He says that for the Jews, Old Testament sacrifices were also important. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? The really tricky thing about that is knowing which sacrifices and which altar? Because it could be one of two different things. Paul might well be referring to the sacrifices that God commanded that were made in the, temple, in the tabernacle and in the temple. Sacrifices which, as you read through the Levitical law, there were times when you would bring your offering and the priests would offer the offering, but some of what was offered would then be given back to you to eat and some of it would be taken by the priests to eat. So you've got this idea that the Corinthians can relate to of they go to the temple or the tabernacle and then they fellowship, they receive some of the benefits of what they are giving to God. That may well be exactly what Paul's thinking of. Or he could be referring to the idolatrous sacrifices that they made. We go back to verse 7. Paul is only just reminded the Corinthians, of what the Israelites were like. He said, don't be idolatrous as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revel me. In fact, Paul might have Deuteronomy 32 in his mind, which is Moses' song at the end of his life. As he looks back on all the things that God has done, and he's reminding the people of the way that they willingly turned away from God and offered sacrifices to false gods. They angered God with their worthless idols. And Moses goes on to talk about how by, by the time they 
trusted in these idols and needed something from them, the idols couldn't do anything for them. So you get to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 37. The Lord will say, now, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in, the gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings, let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. I honestly don't know which Paul had in mind. Was it the faithful sacrifices or the forbidden sacrifices? I don't know. But in one sense, it doesn't matter. Because the principle Paul is making is the same for both. Whether Paul is thinking about the sacrifices made at God's altar, he is reminding them that the Israelites knew that experience of sharing fellowship with God. Or he might be saying, you did the same thing when you turned your back on me and worshipped false gods. You united yourself to, you fellowshiped with evil spirits. That's how real all of this was. That's how it's always been, says Paul to the Corinthians. I'm not describing a reality now in the Lord's Supper that is different to what the people of the Israelites knew in the Old Testament. It has always been the same. Participating in religious meals matters because you're fellowshipping with the host of the table. Now, there's the big point. Can you also heal me? I can't really hear myself. Can you hear me? Yes? No? Okay, I'm going to keep going. Okay, if you heard this live in Corinth... This is probably the point where you stick your hand up and go, hang on a minute, Paul. Appreciate they didn't have chapters and verse, but for our convenience, Paul, you come back to chapter 8 and verse 4, because about 90 seconds ago, or however long it would have taken him to get from chapter 8, verse 4 to chapter 10, you just said, now about eating food sacrificed to ideals, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. So surely we can't be fellowshipping with idols when we gather around any pagan feast because there aren't any. They don't exist. Excellent question, says Paul. I refer you to verse 19. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? Now we get to the big reveal. This, in one sense, is what Paul has been building up with ever since he got into chapter 8. This is the thing that sets all of their activity in its context. Are false gods real or not? Paul's really clear. Verse 20. No, idols aren't anything. And the food sacrificed to them isn't anything. Excellent, say the Corinthians. We're good. Apollo doesn't exist. Zeus doesn't exist. Artemis doesn't exist. You name them. It's all fake. We're good. We'll just keep doing what we're doing. No. No, it's way more serious than that. Look at verse 20. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Yes, idols are nothing. 
Any man-made anything? Hopefully some of you have got Isaiah, is it 44, in your mind, and you're thinking about the ridiculous nature of the carpenter who cut down a tree and carved half of it for wood and for all the other things that you need, and then made an idol out of the other half and started worshipping it. And Isaiah is so beautifully clear in the ironic criticism of, you idiot, what are you doing? That idol that you've just made can't hear you, can't help you, can't provide for you. It's all true. But behind that lifeless idol is a real, powerful, demonic force. Real spiritual forces are present where there is idolatry. And that's what the Corinthians needed to understand. Because religious meals matter. So thirdly and finally, for the Corinthians, they had to stop participating with demons in pagan sacrifices. Paul pleads with them, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Paul is lifting the veil on the spiritual realm. I was reading an article this afternoon by a a Christian in All Souls who understands science and technology to degrees that I don't understand. And he was saying one of the things that is so alarming about this kind of transhuman drive that some scientists have to use technology to try and do things with humanity in ways that we can't even really begin to imagine at the moment. It's the way it's a reminder and a reflection of the fact that we are at pains to ignore any spiritual reality. All we want to think about is what we can see and touch and feel. That we can manipulate and develop and somehow have some kind of control over. Paul says, look with the eyes of faith at the reality of the spiritual world. Look who is seated at the head of the table that you're at. If you are seated at the Lord's table, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is at the head of your table. If you're seated at a pagan feast, it's not an idol who's there. But behind the idol is a demon who is desperately fighting to pull you away from worshipping the God of heaven and earth. Who hates the very existence of God. And to share a meal with such a real spiritual force who is so opposed to the God of the universe is unthinkable. What the Corinthians were doing was not just rolling down the street and having a medium rare steak in the dining room of a religious building of a slightly different religion. In the same way that Christians participate in the host of the Lord's Supper. They were participating, they were koinoneering with demons. And God won't allow it. The God of heaven and earth demands full and complete allegiance. And we will only know joy and liberty and freedom 
when we willingly give that to him. There's no middle ground here. There's no neutral zone. You can't dabble with both sides. Look at Paul's language. You cannot, verse 21, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Sometimes when we get to this dichotomy, extreme language in the New Testament, we might be tempted to think, Paul was just a little bit of a stuck-in-the-mud stricto. Jesus would have been far more gracious. Paul's just saying exactly what Jesus preached. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, sounds like opposite ends of the spectrum to me, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Now, is that unreasonable? Or is it wrong? Picture a married couple, all dressed up, going out for a meal together. They've booked a table at their favorite restaurant. They walk in, take a seat, order their favorite bottle of wine, and start eating two of their favorite starters. At which point, the husband excuses himself, leaves the restaurant, walks down the road, goes into a different restaurant, and sits down at a table with a different woman and starts eating her meal with her. How would his wife feel? And more than that, how would it be right for his wife should be full of righteous anger and jealousy. All of the things that they were enduring, all of that was, that was a moment of intimacy. That was, that was a covenant-given gift. So married life is meant to be like. And this man's actions would rightly lead to disaster, wouldn't it? That's what Paul warns the Corinthians in verse 22. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? If you've read much of the Old Testament, you will know that again and again, God describes his relationship with his people like a marriage. God is always faithful. But time and time again, his people turn their back on him. And that's not just some intellectual thing, turn their back on him, or they forgot about him, or they didn't remember him, or whatever it might be. It's flirting with somebody else. God uses the language of committing adultery with another woman. It's that level of separation and seriousness. And we know that God's response to that was jealousy and anger. Was that unreasonable? Was that wrong? Of course it wasn't. We know that from our own experience. We know that from the history of Israel. And now Paul reminds the Corinthians, and he's reminding us this evening, that God hasn't changed. 
God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's so many times, isn't there, in the Christian life when we read something in our Bibles and we think, oh, I'm really glad that God's more gracious now than he was in the Old Testament. I don't know where we got that idea from, but it's not in the Bible. God is the same God today as he ever was. This language about jealousy, it is from Paul to the Corinthians in the New Testament. That's how serious this is. And so Jesus is making the same plea with us tonight. Is there anything in your life where you are pursuing the love of other people or things in place of God himself? Flee from idolatry. Don't flirt with it. Don't try to eat at God's table and then sneak in a side order somewhere else. See how serious this is. This level of commitment, which in the, old, in, the coven, sorry, in the Corinthians church was so easy to see by the parallel to a pagan festival. In our world, perhaps it's harder to see some of those similarities, but that commitment to something else instead of God is this serious because you are uniting yourself to an evil spiritual force. And if you are there or have been there, come back to the hope of the gospel. Here's where I want us to finish this evening. It'd be so easy to finish on judgment. I want you to think of what we remember at the Lord's Supper. Who is it that's at the host of that table? You think about the hosts, these demonic hosts of other feasts. Their main ambition is to pull you away from God. They're going to make sin look attractive. They're going to, they're going to convince you that godliness is, is a horrendously boring lifestyle. Why would you ever pursue that? They're never going to mention to you that at the end of an, an awfully short life, if you have turned your back on the King of Kings, you will spend all of eternity paying for your sin in hell forever. There's another table you can come to. And the host of this table welcomes you in with nail-pierced hands. Because his hands have paid the price for your bill at the table. And not only for you to be able to sit at the table and fellowship with him for every other blessing that he gives you. He has given you his righteousness so that your sin is covered. He has given you a family status that belongs to him so that you can be part of the family of God. Now, in such a way that your life will change now in advance of being with him forever. And he has given you an eternity that will never, ever end He is the host of the table that beckons you to come. Stop trusting in idols. Turn away from demons. Come to the table of the Son of God who has given his life that we may know him. What great blessings come from participating with him.